Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Emily Lazell. If we've not met before, uh, married to Martin and one of the senior pastors here of the church. Uh, I don't know if you heard, sorry, I just shouted out, let's what, when Martin said, it's going to get crazy down there with the youth, so let's. I'm like, what, let's, let's pray? Let's exit? Let's, let's what? Anyway, um, but no, let's welcome the reading. That was the right thing to do. <laughs> just went into a little moment of panic, feeling out of control. Anyway, um, good morning. What a beautiful morning. Great to see you all this morning. Um, I'd love to tell you about uh, a morning some years ago. It was a sunny uh, spring day similar to the one that we have um, this morning. My family and I were living in Oxford and uh, a friend came to visit and because we were fortunate enough to have a bit of outdoor space and the weather was gloriously warm, we decided that we would sit outside. And then I um, happened to spot a ladybird sitting, um, this glorious bright little body glistening against the backdrop um, of a white windowsill that it had happened upon. And I called my young son, who delighted in small creatures and insects, uh, to come and marvel at the intricacies of God's creation that had just landed in our back garden. And uh, as uh, he drew close with um, wide-eyed wonder, I looked around at my friend with this inner smugness that said, aren't my children wonderful? Aren't they interested? Aren't they gentle? And at that point, my son stretched out his tiny finger and he squashed the ladybird dead. And I was horrified and humbled in equal measure, dying inside in front of our guests whilst the ladybird lay dead before us all. And the minutes passed as we processed uh, the passing of the ladybird and the unexpected and somewhat shocking events that led up to this point. A cocktail of, of, of questions, of confusion, of disillusionment in this child that I have raised and dismay at what had happened in front of our friend. But despite... Um, uh, his part, my son's part in this lifeless body that lay before us, my heavy-fingered son said with heavy conviction that we must pray that this ladybird should be raised to life. Now, in that moment, a little smugness arose within me, and there was resurrection itself within side of me at the thought of being parentally redeemed in front of my friend, at we producing this young yet theologically sound son. And uh, 
I confess, though, that uh, my conviction and faith in God to bring uh, the ladybird back to life was not quite at the same level as my son. But despite my lack of faith, the four of us gathered round the dead body and we prayed that God indeed would raise it to life. Of course, nothing happened. And uh, we prayed again. My faith, as we continued to pray, continued to decrease. And I kid you not... The ladybird came back to life. And I kid you not, it was dead. Now, I have no medical verification to offer you right now on this moment, but it was definitely dead. It was dead for many, many, many minutes, and it came back to life. As it raised to life, it flew off. My son walked off, and the three of us adults were in floods of tears, literally laughing and crying in utter amazement at what we had just seen, at what we just witnessed. Now, you may well be asking, among other things, what the significance of this 15-year-old, yet totally true account of a tiny ladybird has to do with the passage that we've just read from John's Gospel. On hearing John's words, the Jewish audience at the time, knowing the Torah, knowing the first five books of the Old Testament, they would have immediately linked those opening words in verse 19 on the evening of that first day of the week with Genesis accounts of creation. And they would have instantly recognized and understood the significance of what John was about to say that something of new resurrection life had started. For you and me, hearing these words today, at the end of April 2023, how significant, how relevant is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened nearly 2,000 years ago? What difference does it make to us in our day to day? I believe it is the most significant event in the history of the world Every event that occurred before it and after it is dated by it. Because he lives, not the ladybird, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord over all creation. And in this passage, I just want to really quickly pull out five truths from these verses that have a significant impact on our lives today and how we should live because he lives. So follow me, um, if you will, through these verses. The first is, because he lives, we have his presence to surround us. After Jesus was killed, his disciples met in a locked room. The doors were closed because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had sent Jesus to the cross. And the disciples, they felt like they were alone, they were fearful, they expected the worst. Faith in Jesus Christ, just as, as a Christian puts faith in Jesus, doesn't exempt us from experiencing fear, from experiencing uncertainty, from experiencing painful or difficult times. In fact, Jesus actually said to his disciples earlier in John's gospel, in this world, you will have trouble. And he says the same to us. In this world, you will have trouble. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news if you've had a cracking morning this morning. But generally in life, we know that it's filled, isn't it, with unexpected circumstances. And perhaps you're experiencing that right now. Perhaps you're right in the middle of a really difficult time. Maybe in your work or with your finances. Maybe in a relationship with a friend or a spouse or a relative. 
Psalm 27 verse 10 says, even if my mother and father abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. The disciples were in the midst of unexpected circumstances. And in that moment, behind locked doors, Jesus came and he stood among them. During every moment of your life, from the very best to the very worst, God is with you. God is with you. Liverpool football club fans, you know how I'm a big fan of football. Not. I'm forced into it because of my family. But Liverpool football club fans, they're right when they'll proclaim, I'll never walk alone. In fact, God is never closer than when you are in difficult times. So if you're experiencing difficult times today, be assured that God is with you. Psalm 34 verse 18 said, The Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who have lost all hope. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. It's promised again and again and again in the Bible of the presence of God and his faithfulness during difficult times. And God's presence is, is not a feeling, it's a fact. It's a depends on, it doesn't matter how you feel today. The truth is, the fact is, he is with you. And we need to be quite careful, I think, sometimes that we don't put too much on our feelings. Obviously, our feelings tell us something. We've been given emotions. God has made us emotional beings. But sometimes we can listen to our feelings too much. And I don't know about you, but my feelings can change day to day and even within the day. Actually, however, though, I I recall words that a pastor said to me at a Spring Harvest Christian Festival many years ago, shortly after I first became a Christian. And he said to me, stay at the spout where the spirit pours out. I loved it. I was like, oh yeah, I was so ready for a bit of cliche, you know, cliche sort of cheeky stuff. Stay at the spout where the spirit pours out. Love that bit of cheese. But in my experience, the more I stay in the presence of God, the more I spend time in worship, the more I spend time in prayer, the more I read the word, the more I open it up, I do experience the presence of God. That is my experience. Verse 20 says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. You know, here we are, picture the scene. You've got the risen Lord. He's come into a locked room. So first of all, he's, you know, you might have situations even in your life that just feel locked up. And you're like, Lord, I didn't know how you're going to break in. The Lord in this passage shows that he can come into any situation that feels locked. So he comes in and he shows them his hands and his side. He doesn't turn up in all his glory. He doesn't turn up and just said, I promised you, I told you I'd come back, and here I am. He doesn't do that. I think I might have done that. I would have said, I told you so, but he doesn't. He shows the disciples his scars. Now, I've never broken a bone in my body, and perhaps I'm naturally risk-averse, but I do have scars. I have a scar from having four C-sections for my sons um, when they were born. The scar getting wider and wider as the doors open, uh, as the doors, as the doctors. Like, it was like a door. They might as well have put a zip in, to be honest. Open her up again. As the doctors open me up each time. But our scars tell a story. And I don't know if we, those of you who carry scars, you can tell a story, can't you, behind why you carry that scar. Mine speaks of new life. Reminder of a little bit of discomfort too. But on the whole, it speaks of new life, bringing new life into the world. 
And likewise, Jesus' scars speak of new life for you and for me that was brought on the cross. Now, our scars will never compare to his, but I think it's fascinating that in a resurrected body, he chose to keep his scars. Because I'm pretty sure I would have erased them if it were me. If I were the risen Jesus, I would have cut, you know, cut out any blemish and I would, have cut, I would have come in all my glory. But Jesus chooses not to do that because he's not been conditioned in a culture to idolize appearance like many of us have. But I think Jesus is showing us that he knows what it's like to have suffered. He knows what it's like to have experienced pain. He's saying, I know the pain. He's saying, I know what it's like to have people that you love let you down. I know what it's like to have people who betray you. I know what it's like to lose someone and not know why. I know what it's like to have answers. I know what it's like to come before God and say, why? That's what he said, why have you forsaken me before he went to the cross? He'll say, I know what it's like to feel the absence of the presence of God when he was separated from God when he went to the cross. He's saying, I know and I understand pain, not because I understand all these things because I'm God, but because I've experienced it, because I know what it's like to suffer. And his scars mean that he can minister to our wounds, with our wounds, whatever they are. The resurrected Jesus in this story comes to his disciples with compassion and he does the same for us today. The presence of the resurrected Jesus changed everything. In verse 20, it says, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Their panic turned into a party. They'd been depressed and despondent, but the presence of Jesus surrounding and transforming them changed everything. They were anxious and afraid and they became assertive and assured. They went from being embarrassed and exhausted to ecstatic and elated. They went from being cowardly to courageous, fearful to fearless, hopeless to hopeful, powerless to being powerful, power-filled, upset to being unstoppable. They changed because he lives. Then millions of lives were changed. And as a result now, billions of lives changed because Jesus lives. Because he lives, we have his presence to surround us. Secondly, because he lives, we have his peace to secure us. The Roman Catholic priest, lecturer and author, Ronald Rollheiser, he said this in his book, The Holy Longing. He said, it's no easy task to walk this earth and find peace Inside of us, it would seem, something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it's hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction. Put more simply, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. And then here Jesus is, in verse 21, for the second time, he says it twice, and I think that's significant. Jesus says, peace be with you. 
We can find ourselves, can't we, tossed around, I know I do, tossed around with our many wants and demands and desires in life. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the only one who can secure us in his much-needed peace. And I know for some of you, you're heading into exam season coming up. And I just want to say, do the time, do the hard work, make the effort, but also take time to stop and to pray and to receive his peace because he offers it to you. And I find when I take those moments to receive his peace, God helps quieten my my worries, my distracted heart, and he reframes my desires and my, my priorities. Thirdly, because he lives, we have his purpose to sustain us. When Jesus came into the world, he told us what his purpose was. In Luke 19, verse 10, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' purpose is in three R's, basically, to rescue to redeem and to restore. Jesus' last words, as you will remember, on the cross were, it is finished. He was declaring that the purpose for which he came into this world was accomplished, completed on the cross. It doesn't need any addition. It doesn't need any extra. It doesn't need anything else added to it. Nothing more is necessary. But there is a difference between accomplishing something and implementing something. His purpose for his disciples and for us today, the invitation for us today as the church, is to implement. It's the fourth R. It's to represent. We're called to represent him to the world. In his book, The Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren reports on a survey that found 89% of church members believe the church's purpose is to take care of my own needs and those of my family. And actually, only 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Jesus Christ. But here in these verses, Jesus is saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Following on from Martin's talk, for those of you who were here last week on the Great Commission, where or who is God sending you to? Author Mark Mittelberg believes we often need reminding of this because otherwise we experience what he calls the second law of spiritual dynamics. Left to ourselves, we tend to move towards self-centeredness. We tend to move more inward. But it is impossible to find purpose and meaning if we centre our lives around ourselves. It is impossible. We will never find that satisfaction. Personal satisfaction, personal fulfilment and joy occur when we look beyond our own needs. I love remembering the acronym JOY, Jesus, Others, Yourself. In that order, that's what brings you joy. Because he lives, we have his peace to secure us his purpose to sustain us, and fourthly, because he lives, we have his power to strengthen us. Verse 22 says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does many things. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit brings comfort to us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. The Holy Spirit gives us words to speak in situations when he's calling us to represent him. The Holy Spirit helps us to resist temptation. But the Holy Spirit also gives us power to carry out the purposes of God. You know, self-help, positive thinking, um, good deeds in our own strength can only go so far. 
I saw this meme earlier this week, which tickled me somewhat. So I like watching things over and over again, and I find it gets funnier every time I see it. So that's why I'm like, do it again, do it again, do it again. Our good deeds can only get us so far. They don't impress God. When Jesus breathed on the disciples, it was to enable them to do, which God was inviting them to. And again, the theme of new creation, as I mentioned at the start, goes deeper still into this passage because when God came looking for Adam in the garden in Genesis 3 verse 8, it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Now, in this passage, on the evening of the new creation's first day, a different wind sweeps through the room. And the words for wind, breath, and spirit, they're all the same. And they're the same whether you read it in Hebrew or in Greek. The wind is the healing breath of God's spirit. Come to rescue, redeem, restore, and to reverse the effects of the rebellion back in that first garden and to make all things new. So because he lives, we have his presence to surround us, his peace to secure us, his purpose to sustain us, and his power to strengthen us. And fifthly, because he lives, we have his promise to assure us. Now there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible that God makes, over 7,000. So I haven't got time, you'll be pleased to know, to go into all of them today. But many of them are about his presence. Many of them are about his peace. Many of them are about his purpose and about his power. But the significance of the resurrection of Jesus for me and for you today includes two promises for the future. And there's first, I just want two that I want to light on. The first promise is the promise of a future resurrection. If you remember the story of Lazarus, when Lazarus died and Martha came running out to Jesus, the conversation we pick up in John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? We couldn't believe this if Jesus hadn't raised himself from the dead, but he did. And that's why billions of people across the earth have put their faith in Christ Jesus, because death is not the end of the story. And then here, Jesus is saying, do you believe in me? Do you believe in me? This is not a principle, but it's a person. He said, I am the resurrection We need to get to know the person of Jesus. Not church activities, not even religious activities, not even spiritual formation, but the person of Jesus. And the second promise is the promise of a future judgment. That sounds quite harsh. You don't like talking about judgment, but this is about justice. It's about justice. We live in a world where justice is so often perverted and neglected And injustice is often the stumbling block for trusting in the goodness of God. You know, we'll often look at things, won't we, and say, how can that be? How can that happen? God, if you're just. But the resurrection means, among other things, that God's justice will ultimately prevail. God's justice will ultimately rule. 
coming into land. In the early 70s, there were a couple um, who wrote a song called Because He Lives. And uh, they were an American couple called Bill and Gloria Gaither. And they wrote the song after they just had their third son. And they were looking at everything going on in the world at that time. And uh, they were disconcerted by the rise in drug abuse going on, lecturers at universities giving out drugs to students to be able to experiment with, Um, soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War being spat on because of the controversies and about uh, the US being involved in the war. And they were thinking, what are we doing bringing this baby into a world like this? And uh, I saw an interview, um, and in the interview, Gloria said this. She said, we don't have babies and do our lives because this world is stable. We dare to do that because the resurrection is true. A little seedling can push its way through concrete because life wins. We looked at him, talking about their new son, and said, we can do this. We can raise this child, even in this world, in this chaotic time, because the power of the resurrection is true. I can face tomorrow in life and death because it is in the confidence in the resurrection that gives us the courage to, do, to just do life because he lives. And my encouragement today is wherever you find yourself, whether you feel like you're in need of his presence right now because of what you're going through, whether you desperately need his peace, whether you need that sense of purpose, realignment, direction again, what is my life about? What are you calling me to? Or because you need his power at work within you with the things that you know he's calling you to step into. Or because you need to be reminded of the promise and the eternal perspective that God holds. We can put our faith and our trust in him today because he lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the incredible gift of your son to us. And we thank you, Lord, that this is not just a story that we look at and we study from years ago. This is not simply a historic event. But it's a historic event that points to the whole of history and to all eternity. And here now, today, on this day, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the truth of your presence, of your peace, your purpose for us, your promises over us and your power within us. Bring alive again that truth of who you are. No matter what we're facing, Lord, would you come and step into our lives and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.